Welcome to the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors, presented by FMG Suite. Listen to interviews with the movers, shakers, geniuses, and innovators of the financial advisory world. Visit FMGSuite.com to discover more great resources and products to transform you into an extraordinary marketer and grow your advisory. And now, without further delay, the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors presented by FMG Suite. My name is Samantha Russell, and I'm stepping in as today's host. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And we have a really special guest today. I'm excited to be joined by Penny Phillips, one of the brightest minds in financial services and someone who I love following myself. She's president and co-founder of Journey Strategic Wealth, and she's a seasoned industry consultant and speaker. And one of my favorite things to tell you is that according to her Twitter profile, she provides much needed real talk to combat all the BS in the industry. (laughs) So with that, Penny, welcome. Thank you so much. It's so awesome to be here. So I always like to start by asking people to tell us a little bit about their background, things um, about, you know, where they grew up and sort of how they got into the industry, because it's always such a telling um, part of people's story. So could we start there? Absolutely. And, you know, I don't have a super glamorous backstory, Samantha. Everybody who knows me knows the the thing I always say about myself is born and raised in New York, big fat Greek family. That's that's my background. I don't you know, my parents are immigrants from Greece. Um, You know, I never thought I'd go into the financial services business. I didn't have any connections to to the industry, but really enjoyed public speaking in, in college and was approached by somebody who, who said, you know, you, you should go into sales. And um, I, I did want to be a lawyer, but uh, that, that ship has sailed. And so I started in the business in sales for a, a mutual fund company called Mainstay Investments. It was an awesome way to start in the business. I, I learned so much about advisors and about the, the financial services industry, but really quickly, I said, God, I I wish there was a different way in which I could be engaging with these advisors versus just, you know, selling them something. And so I, um, I, I took a leap of faith really early on, maybe two, three years into the business and joined what was at the time really a pilot program at at New York Life. Um, Mainstay was one of their subsidiaries. I, I jumped to another part of the company and the pilot was around, how do we get really successful salespeople, insurance agents to be really successful financial advisors? And being part of that program, if you will, um, started my career in practice management. I became really fascinated, not just with how business owners and practice owners evolve, but with the, the mindset shifts and the behaviors that have to shift as you're growing a business. And so you know, fast forward uh, 13 years later, um, I, I ran a consulting company focusing on practice management consulting. And then uh, this year launched an RAA after after many, many years of seeing what I thought was wrong with the business, launched something that I felt really got it right for independent advisors. And so that's the short story. So it's so interesting. And I want to unpack one of the things you said there. Um, you know, you mentioned how that was your entryway into practice management and you know you're you've made a career out of being a consultant and a coach and i heard you say on another podcast actually that i was listening to um that you were on and i I love so much of of what you share 
that when you're coaching, that you really explain to your clients that co coaching is 15% concept and 85% behavioral change. And that's why so many people will listen to all of these behavioral coaches or go to a conference and get great information and then go back to their office and go back to their day-to-day -day and nothing changes. So when you know, you're know you out there working with these different firms um, and have been in the past, what are some of the, you know, if we're really pulling out from a bird's eye view, what are some of the, the tenets of that embracing behavioral change that successful firms get right? It's such a good question and such a deep question. And that is something I say, and I say it all the time, practice management is 15% concept, 85% behavioral change. There is a reason advisors will go to conferences and listen to webinars and go to workshops and get really excited and then go back to their offices and jump right back on the hamster wheel. What I've noticed about the best in the business, the most successful advisors, the ones who you know, continue to grow despite having a year like, like last year, um, are the ones who have the ability to evolve quickly. And I know that seems like an obvious statement, but what that actually comes down to is being able to come into work every day as an advisor and have no preconceived notions about what is going to work today versus what worked yesterday. And so those advisors who come into every day, even if they've been in the business for 30 years, feeling like new day, clean slate, if we want to try something new today, whether it's, you know, video marketing or Zoom, you know, people who were doing that pre-pandemic, having that ability to not be attached to any single strategy or an initiative, those are the advisors that have fared very, very well the last, I'd say, 10 years. And so there's a, there's an element of being able to, to do that that is tied to, I think, the, the advisors that are most successful. I love that. I, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people who've come to me and, you know, even just a couple of years ago and would say things like, I don't really need a website. I get all of my new business from referrals. It's just like a business card online. And I would constantly say the past is not the predictor of the future. That's right. <laughs> you know, you, you can't you can't look at things that way yet. We want to because it's easy and it's our brains are wired to do that. It's, you know, part of our evolutionary makeup. Um, and it keeps us safe in a lot of situations, but safe doesn't always win. Um, you know, how do you, when you're, when you're working with a firm and, and they're, you know, telling you, Penny, we want to grow, right? Um, growing is a huge, huge strategy that people want to undertake. And it's often things people struggle the most with. What are you, you know, coaching people on as like a first step when they're thinking about growth? And you, you just said something that you use the word safety. And I think the, the second element to, to that, you know, the success formula is, is the idea of just getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And, and that could mean you're uncomfortable on a daily basis because maybe now you're recording video. I'm using the video thing a lot because it's just come up so much. But, but being okay with that feeling of, this is maybe not my strong suit, but I'm going to try it anyway. That That's a big piece of, of, of the growth equation from my standpoint as well. You know, you're right. That is the number one thing. I would say number one thing advisors need coaching on. Um, it, it usually has to do with team and human capital, but it will be articulated as we need to grow. We need help growing. 
And, you know, how do we we start to think about that? And so unpacking that, there's so many other practice management things and challenges that emerge. But, you know, I say to advisors, if we're looking purely on the organic side, so inorganic growth, obviously, you know, buying books of business, um, you know, acquiring, et cetera, that's a totally um, separate side of the growth equation, which we could talk about. Um, On the organic side, what I say to advisors is, especially now, I, I want teams to get comfortable really simplifying things. And by that, I mean, there's only three ways to acquire new business right now on the organic side. One is through referrals and introductions, obviously. The second is through your digital presence, your ability to articulate a message, wow people, generate interest, via the only channels that we have now to do that, although it's changing in some states with, you know, the restrictions being lifted, but through, through you know, digital or, or, or video. And then the third piece is through um, generational wealth transfer. So, and that's, that's maybe a longer game that you have to play, but through your ability to preserve assets as they move from one generation to the next. So that's it. There's those three ways. And I'd say that first way I talked about with referrals and introductions, that's not just your current clients, but that is centers of influence as well. So those are your three funnels. And when you think about your client acquisition strategy, your marketing strategy, whatever it is, I want advisors to be completely focused on looking at their strategy through those three channels. And so that, that's how I'd start that conversation. That's such a such a good way to look at it. And some people are going to be better at certain elements of those three than than others. Um, you know, you've touched on video a couple of times, so let's stay there for a second. Um, you you know, you and I are both big proponents and bullish on video. We both create videos that we put out on social media and, and on YouTube channels. And I think we both have identified that they work. They work really well. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about, um, from your perspective, why video has been so successful for you? And if there are certain distribution mechanisms when you're, you know, disseminating that video that work better than others? You you have me beat, Samantha. Yours are so well done. Mine are, you know, me talking to my my uh, MacBook and, and sending them out, but <laughs> not, not edited. They're, they're like super just raw. But I have to say, it's been tremendous for me. And prior to launching Journey, obviously, I had the consulting business and it was the single greatest driver of growth for me from a new client perspective. Wow. What a lot of people don't know is that the video for me, I've been doing it now maybe probably about four years, really picked up, I would say, in the last two years. And what it started for me with this similar line of thinking, right? There's I was starting a new business as a consultant and coach in the industry, oversaturated space. How can I get my name out there and my brand out there? And I thought to myself, what are the only ways I have to connect with people right now? One was digital, so my social presence. Um, The second was um, having the ability to put content out there that people would, you know, perhaps like or that would be relevant to them. And so I thought to myself, I don't really love blogging. Um, Let me start with just simple videos. And I, I share this with advisors because they can deploy the same strategy. It began with me exporting all of the email addresses that I had in my email 
And beginning with a, a simple email, I am starting something new. I want you to be part of it. I'm going to be sending 10 minute videos once a week with information that I think is relevant to you. If you don't like it, feel free to unsubscribe. If you like it, invite your friends. And that was it. And I've been doing it now for years. Every week I, I do, I, I just started a YouTube channel, by the way, but every year it's a week rather, it's a 10 minute video clip. The content is always organic. So it's based on a challenge, a conversation, or some best practice that I hear that week from advisors. Um, I, I record it that morning, send it out, and it's really picked up a following. And I think because it is so raw, it's not scripted, it's completely off the cuff, and it's really timely information, it's worked well for me. And I think advisors could and should use the same strategy I did. What I love about what you said, though, too, is, you know, you're not creating a script. You know, maybe you have some bullet points that you know you want to talk about. It's prompted by an organic question or concern that's come up. So it's a lot more doable. The, the barrier to get started is so much lower, which I'm sure you have found in your consulting years. I've certainly found this with my own um, behavioral changes. But the barrier to, to stay consistent with it, the lower it is, the easier it is, obviously, to, to do it every week. So if you don't have to have high production value and you can just sit down and talk to the camera, it's going to be a lot easier to stick with it. That's exactly right. And, you know, I... The reason I named it Wednesday Wisdom was because I wanted to force myself. I, I created an accountability structure for myself. And I, I share this with advisors too. If you ever want to hold yourself accountable, name your whatever it is a day of the week so that it gets, <laughs> sets the expectation that you have to do it. And and it's it's really helped me stick to it. Yeah, I love that. You know, and I, I think... Um, What's really interesting is so I do all of the videos that I record in one take, but then we have um, been really blessed and lucky to have some amazing video editors that actually have just been um, historically college interns that I found and hired. And, um, you know, we pay them uh, by the hour to then edit the videos and they are amazing at their editing capabilities. And it's something that's still on my bucket list to learn. But I think what I love about your strategy, again, is that you you're not sitting there editing them and adding all of these different um you know, mechanisms that famous YouTubers have, you're developing it specifically for your audience and it's working raw the way that it is. So <laughs> yeah, I think I, that empowers a lot of people to, to take the same path. Yeah. And I think you mentioned something that I talk a lot about too. I, you know, advisors, when they think about deploying marketing dollars, they, I think get really caught up in oh my gosh, I'm going to have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to pull something like this off. And the truth is, th th what it costs me to run this essentially YouTube channel now and, and run this the newsletter, the video newsletter, is I pay a service called BombBomb. They are a video service. I, I like them because they integrate well with all of the email systems. So I've also used the videos for prospect emails instead of just sending a traditional you know, cold email or, Hey, nice to meet you. I send a video. Um, it costs me, you know, whatever it is, 50 bucks a month and, and that's it. And I, I really haven't had to use, you know, use money in any other way, but to your point, it doesn't cost that much to find, you know, an intern or, or somebody who can freelance and do this on the side and help you. So you've really been, you know, the face of your previous firm, Thrivus Consulting, and, you know, even now moving forward with at Journey, 
Um, let's talk a little bit about that. You know, how intentional were you in deciding, you know, that you wanted to be the face of the brand? Um, I always tell people, people connect with people, not brands, and people are much more loyal to people than they are to brands, especially the younger generations. And so, you know, having a face of the company has been one of the challenges I've given to all the advisors that I work with for 2021. Choose somebody, make them the face of your business, have them be the person other people can connect with digitally in a much more authentic way, get them on camera, and that should be a priority. You know, what's your take on something like that? That's a really good question. It was with Thrivos, it was not intentional. It was, I had to, I, at the time it was just me and then obviously built the business and what it came down to, you know, at the end before I, I moved on, although the company is still thriving and doing well is, is I was the most comfortable communicating via video and, and via, you know, presenting and being on stage than anyone else. And so by default, it was just sort of became my role. With Journey, two things. The first is I have dedicated my career to um, on, uh, trying to understand and, and support advisors. And so my ability to get on you know, camera and talk about you know, challenges advisors are having or address questions that come up about you know, the business or the RIA space, I'm very comfortable in that. And so, again, it just it made sense to sort of um, to have me doing the majority of the of the talking but i'll also say you know i've i've two really wonderful partners um they are advisors they've been in the business my senior partner for 40 years what i respect about them is that they they see the future of the business and they are true allies in every sense of the word and and really support a younger female being the face of an organization and have really supported me and in, in, in that role. Um, and so it, it, it just sort of happens organically, but then we felt, you know, this is right because we want our firm to look and feel like not just what the future advisor looks, uh, looks like, but what, what the future wealth holder does too. Yeah. I love that you, you know, they're, they're hip to the message and embracing it because, um, it definitely is generational and, and I understand I'm, I'm, prepared to be that person, you know, I'm 35, 15 years from now, now saying, what, this isn't the way we used to do it. <laughs> and I'm sure I will be. And I have two younger sisters who are college aged who, you know, were the first people to tell me about TikTok and um, keep me sort of hip to all of the different trends, but it can, you know, technology and digital trends move so fast that it can feel like you're just starting to get on the bandwagon with one and another one comes up that you feel like you need to learn. Is that something that, you know, your clients and people you've worked with have expressed frustration about? Oh my gosh, totally. And I understand that. I'm, we're the same age, you and I. And so we're, we're the interesting, like upper, older millennial where we're not on the TikToks. And, you know, I, I don't, the only social media I have is really sort of professional related. So I, I get it. And I'm, and I am very present on, you know, LinkedIn and Twitter. So I can't imagine some of my you know, advisors who I've worked with saying, gosh, I just figured out how to, you know, be on Slack. And now you want me to get on, you know, TikTok or whatever. <laughs> so what I say to advisors is two things, because I see this a lot on LinkedIn. I see a lot of, you know, let me say this. 
the big institutions in our business are like seven years behind, you know, where they should be to some extent. Like all of a sudden now advisors are on, you know, LinkedIn and being really present on LinkedIn where, where that was the thing we were suggesting they do, you know, five, six, seven years ago. But what I say to advisors is number one, where are your clients living and engaging? If they're not on TikTok right now, if they're not on LinkedIn, don't spend your time on LinkedIn right now. They, I, I see this a lot when advisors say to me, you know, I'm trying the content stuff and the digital stuff and, and I'm not getting a lot of engagement. And I always ask them, where are you posting? Where are you engaging? And is that in, aligned with where your ideal client engages? I will not accept the answer of my clients aren't on social media because everybody and their grandmother is on social media. So, <laughs> so you, you know, that's the first thing It's like, it's just sort of the basics. Like my, my clients are advisors. They live on LinkedIn and, you know, on Twitter to some extent. And so that's where I'm engaging. That's the first thing. The second thing I'd say is it's really hard to do what I said earlier, right? Evolve every day while also trying to, I'll say, filter out the noise you and I can attest to this there every single day. It's like, get on clubhouse and do this, you know, now the podcast and, and to some extent you have to double down on what you're really good at. And if you, if you're getting some traction with something, stick to it. And if everybody else is jumping and going on clubhouse, it's okay to stick with what works with you for a little bit. So it really comes down to being comfortable evolving, but at some point really knowing where your strength is. And if that is in blogging and, and emailing those blogs out, then then go for it. The minute you start to feel like you're losing traction, that's when you start looking for another outlet. I love that advice. And I tell people all the time too, you know, to piggyback on that, that they should before they decide to use any platform for business, I think people hear of it and then they're like, okay, I'm going to set up an account and I'm going to start posting, you know, spend some time, give yourself a quarter, three months and log into these apps. Do you like going there? Do you find it easy to use? Do you want it? Like my mom and all my aunts are in their sixties and they probably spend more time on TikTok than anywhere else because they find (laughs) the videos hilarious. Right. And I think a lot of advisors who've who've said, I'm not interested in TikTok. My audience isn't there. Um, could be surprised in the next five years or a couple of years, just because it is, it's a, it sucks people in for their time. It still remains to be seen whether it's going to be a good driver of business. But I think that, you know, you need to spend time there yourself and see to your point, are, is it a place where your own clients are spending time or will they spend time there? Do you think in the coming years so you can plan for it? That's right. Um, and so, you know, let me just ask you a follow-up question. You mentioned, you know, LinkedIn and Twitter, LinkedIn being the place, you know, that you were primarily spending your own personal time and now you've really gone more all in on Twitter. Um, Was that just because you saw kind of diminishing returns on your own LinkedIn activity? You know, believe it or not, LinkedIn is still the biggest driver of business for me, meaning people interested in what I'm saying want to follow up and potentially, you know, join Journey or join Thrivos or whatever it is. Twitter for me has just been incredible in terms of brand recognition in our industry. But what I was sensing, and and so if you notice, my presence on each is a little bit different. Um, I'm much more likely to be personal and share personal stuff on Twitter, Um, much much more likely to just stick to business and be a little bit rough on LinkedIn because it gets attention, um, you know, and be, be very direct. So it's a little bit of, I've I've tweaked it a little bit. 
I, I shifted my attention to Twitter when I realized how quickly things can go viral and, and how quickly um, you can get sort of people interested in what you're saying. LinkedIn, it took me years and years to build that following. Twitter, it took me maybe two, three months to have people interested in what I was saying. So, but, but I'm adjusting every time. I mean, now I'm on YouTube and, and it's probably going to take me a couple, you know, a couple of years to build, build that up. But, you know, I'm, I'm open to it. I think what's so interesting, I, one of the things I'll tell people all the time is just remember with any of these new platforms, if you start to feel overwhelmed, that you're, you can take the same at its core message and just repackage it up in different ways. So yes, on LinkedIn, you know, share a little bit of personal information, but always tie it back to something business related. It is at its core, a business networking site. Whereas with Twitter, more than anywhere else, you can be off the cuff and, you know, much more in your face and, you know, no BS. Um, on you know YouTube, there isn't as much chance for that socialization, but leaving comments on other creators' platforms. So, yeah, there's like nuances to the algorithms, but at the at its core, you can take one video and repurpose it and repackage it, and it doesn't need to be as overwhelming. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk with you about is you know looking out for the future. I've seen you talk a lot about you know shifts in the industry. Um, you wrote some interesting, uh, interesting piece about GameStop and, you know, communicating with your clients. Um, if you were to look out, you know, five years from now, what are some of the things that the firms you predict would be the most successful will be doing differently than they're doing right now? That's a really good question. Um, I just broadly speaking, I think we are going to see a couple things, and we, when we're already seeing it, I think we're going to see a, a a doubling down on transparency and having a fiduciary standard in the business. So we've seen a lot of outflows of advisors and and you know clients and assets from certain firms and channels, and I think that will continue. I think having the ability to be more flexible to align with what the consumer wants and needs that is going to be the driving force behind change in our business. And and by that, I mean, the consumer of today and consumer meaning client or investor of today and, and of the next, you know, let's call it couple of decades. Um, and I'm especially looking at like the Gen Zers of the world who are coming up behind us, right? They're, they're going to be the prevalent wealth holder in, in, in the, over the next 20 years. These are um, clients who have, very different than the baby boomers and even Gen Gen Xers. They've only ever lived in a tech-enabled society, right? They they don't remember a time like me and you remember a time before you know we had like um, social media. We remember <laughs> yeah, you know, social media was just Facebook. That's on right. Desktop and when I was in college, and I didn't have a cell phone till I think that's I was right. Sixteen. Me too. Sixteen, seventeen. I got a cell phone. So, so the the, the coming generation and advisor, by the way, because the the twenty something advisor who's going to take over the businesses of the advisor aging out of the industry, same thing. Only ever grew up in that culture. They've only ever grown up in a participation trophy society, <laughs> and they've only ever grown up in a world where there was no delayed gratification. There was, there's no blockbuster anymore. Netflix, you can download everything, you know, the whole season and watch in one day. So what, what that does is it changes, not just, it doesn't just change a sales culture, by the way, and it is changing the way advisors succeed in the business, but it changes what, how the consumer wants to engage with service providers. And so the, the firms and advisors that are going to do the best 
are the ones that are going to have the ability to quickly scale and customize, meaning they're going to have access to the best tech that, that the financial services industry has to offer. And they're going to be able to use that tech to quickly scale, but make every single client feel like the experience was created for them. And, and we're seeing that to some extent with firms like Riskalyze with, with what they're doing and, and others. And so um, so obviously my money's on the, you know, independent RIA space. It's why I launched a business in this space. <laughs> you know, I, I also think to some extent the advisors who've built um, multi-gen businesses, that doesn't just mean they have somebody who's, you know, 25 in their organization, but where they've they've developed that talent and they are worried less, and this is really important for advisors, they are worried less today about that 26-year-old being as good of a rainmaker as they were, you know, in 1975. They're more concerned with developing, mentoring, and nurturing that person so that they are a good client retention relationship manager over the next 20 years. Those are the firms that are gonna that are gonna do the best and that are gonna monetize really, really well. So do you think we'll see a, a big uptick in the longevity of the advisor-client relationship? How long people stay with an advisor before switching if they're unhappy? Well, we know this. So we know the stats around that now. And I, you know, I haven't looked as of late. I mean, the industry loves throwing stats around, you know, yeah. how many millennials will leave their parents' advisor and, and so forth. And I, I don't think we've done a, a, as good of a job actually telling advisors what to do with those statistics and, and how to you know, change their businesses. But I think that in the independent space specifically, um, where, where advisors do have the flexibility to engage differently, i.e. charge fees for advice or subscription fees, I do think we'll see those stats look different. I think the, the younger gen would want to work with a you know, a, a, a hip firm that understands them and understands that the traditional model that worked for their parents won't necessarily work for them. That's just my prediction. Yeah. And I mean, I think I, I've we've done marketing for a lot of firms that are kind of almost creating a separate program. So, you know, they have their AUM model for certain clients and then they have like a, for those 35 and under who, you know, have different needs, different needs and different income levels and different assets. They don't maybe need assets under management because their money is tied up, you know, in 401ks. We have this subscription model. And so, you know, being hybrid in your approach has been really successful. And then you can market that and say, you know, we want to work with you um, regardless of how, you know, you're able to pay us. I think right. that really helps build an authentic relationship with with the prospects from the get-go. Yes, and I think that what is also helping to fuel that, that being comfortable with a different service and, and pricing structure is, you know, advisors are different. The, the advisor of today is different than the advisor of the past. And I think one thing that I talk a lot about and I critique a lot is the way we define success in this business. We've traditionally, and I know you talk about this too, we've defined success as, you know, billion the, the billion dollars in AUM and, you know, coming out of the wirehouse or whatever it is. And it, I am finding that the more and more advisors are thinking about success differently. And it's very aligned with the way the client of today thinks about success. They're thinking about, you know, work-life balance and being fulfilled now and, and, and so much more around enjoying and living a fulfilled life than you know, let me let me grind it out for 30 years and, you know, take my first vacation, you know, when I'm 65. And so those preferences, both on the consumer and advisor side have changed. And I think 
advisors are going to be much more open to having a flexible approach. And, and maybe it's not as profitable, you know, upfront, but will definitely pay dividends, you know, proverbially over time. So you kind of touched on something that made me think of this next question, which is um, I even wrote a piece on this perception. Um, so I, I put in the article that there is a perception, whether it's it's real or not is up for debate, I guess, but that in investment management and even to an extent in financial planning, there is this perception of commoditization, right? That mm -hmm. a lot of consumers look at advisory firms and have a really hard time telling the differences between what people offer. And they often feel like they can get the same returns no matter who's investing their money. Um, and my argument in the wealthmanagement.com piece was that regardless of this, whether this commoditization is real or not today or will be in the coming years, the whenever there's a perception of something from the consumers, that's what we need to pay attention to because mm -hmm. perception is reality. And so if consumers have a hard time telling you apart, then you need to do a much better job in differentiating and thinking about the experience and the value that you provide. So where are firms going to get this right? I mean, are they going to focus more on experience? Are they going to focus more on you know, the full well-being of, of clients. Um, do you do you think there is a commoditization here? I'm so happy you brought, brought this up because this is something I talk about a lot as well. Here's my thoughts on it. We, so first of all, absolutely, there's, we're, every aspect of, of wealth management to some extent has been commoditized, but, but, but not in the way that advisors might be thinking. The actual, so first of all, I'll say this, the challenge in our business with how the consumer perceives what advisors do stems from the fact that the terms wealth management and investment management are used synonymously in our business when they shouldn't be. We have there are firms, uh, you know, we know them that that, you know, will sell a specific product or will be just investment management focused or just, you know, insurance focused and will say that they do wealth management and planning. That is not wealth management and planning. And so the challenge is has started to emerge for the advisor who's um, who is saying that they do that, don't actually do that. And now we have robo-advisors that are offering investment advice for zero basis points. And all of a sudden clients are saying, well, why am I paying you one and a half percent? And so the, so the, the reality is, is that investment management has is ultra commoditized if you look at the, the the statistics though the pricing on investment management has compressed obviously because you know technology has changed we have so many you know digital providers now but advisor fees have actually not compressed and and what that indicates is that if you are able to articulate to your clients that wealth management is the umbrella under which investment management, risk management, cash flow, budgeting, philanthropy, I mean, you name it. it. Wealth management is the umbrella that all of those things fall under. And that is why they are paying you, you know, what they're paying you because you do all of that. Those advisors are, are fine. It's the advisors that have said, you know, we, we do wealth management when all they're providing for them is a, you know, investment management experience that candidly they can get much cheaper and much more efficiently elsewhere. Um, that are that are really having the problem, and so I don't know if that exactly addressed um, addressed your question, but but for me, the consumer has been forced to make a choice now between lowest cost or highest value, and this is not unlike what's happened in many other industries. I mean, look at the travel industry. 
there's now there's orbits.com and cheapdickets.com or a concierge travel, you know, concierge person that you pay thousands of dollars for and they can curate an experience. The same thing's happening in our business. There is robos or, you know, the the do-it-yourself digital platforms, which are, some of them are very good, or, you know, wealth management and lifestyle sort of family office structure. That's what, what, what the consumer is being pushed to. So I think we have time for just one more question and it's going to be one to hopefully kind of follow up from what you just said. So if you were a wealth management firm offering true, you know, fiduciary planning, which a lot of the company, the firms that, you know, I speak with do, and and they, they bring up exactly what you said. I'm competing with, you know, false messaging in a lot of cases. What would be your approach to marketing, you know, that firm? Well, I'm happy you asked this because I do now, I'm the president of a wealth management RIA company, and we had to go through this exercise of, gosh, how do we get that message across? And for me, first and foremost, it's education and empowerment of of what wealth management actually means. And so for us, it's doubling down on that message. Here's what perhaps you've heard wealth management is, or here's perhaps the experience you've had with advisors in the past. Here is how we actually define it. We actually define it as every single thing, every decision, every conversation, every uh, thought or challenge that you have around your you know, financial life, in some cases, your personal life that maybe don't feel like they're financial oriented. All of that is wealth management. And, and the reason you hire a professional is not, not necessarily because you're looking for, you know, information. And I, and I share this with, with our advisors, your value proposition as a wealth management advisor is not to provide information that a client can't get elsewhere because with the internet now, with, you know, Reddit, with all these things, I mean, you, the access to information is just at an all time high. Your job is to in, in number one, interpret that information and then help clients filter through all the noise that they hear to what's relevant to their situation or not. And I, I think for us, the, the marketing is completely centered around, you know, what wealth management actually means. And, and when we have these conversations with clients and with prospects, it's so much less about investments and so much more about how do we coordinate uh, um, all of the other aspects of, of their life. And the last thing I'll say is, if advisors are trying to figure out their own message, I ask you to start with coming up with the questions that your ideal client asks him or herself in any given day. So if your if your ideal client is a millennial female entrepreneur, hint hints to two to women here on the call, right? <laughs> then what are reasonably the questions and and concerns that we would have? I see your social media, Samantha. It's you know, making sure that your kids are are being properly sort of stimulated and occupied while you're working from home. It's ensuring that you're, you know, uh, you have a work-life balance that, you know, you, you know, you have the ability to have a, an advisor, a professional on call at, t- at a time that it works for you. And, and so you have to get into the minds of the consumer if you really want to define wealth management. And so I, I share with advisors that you should start there Whatever those questions are that your ideal client is asking, that's the key to your value proposition as it relates to wealth management. 
I love that. And you made me think, you know, during the early days of the pandemic, one of the, my favorite things that our financial advisor did was he sent every week an email where he would take all the headlines, the scary headlines about, you know, market volatility or the market dropping or jobs reports. And he'd give us like he'd link to the original articles and give us the facts, but then give us his take. And he did it every week and he still does it actually. Amazing. Um, and the news was changing so quickly. And, you know, um, my husband and I owning um, a business before 20 over 10 was acquired by FMG just this past November, you know, as business owners, there was so much he would send us. And I know he had a lot of other small business owners, um, you know, about the PPP loan, all kinds of stuff. Yes. And it was so valuable. And to your point, like I would open that email every Thursday and think, man, he knows what I'm wondering about before I even have to ask. Such a good, I, I, I say to it, this was at the, the height of the pandemic, I was, you know, young at advisors in a nice way like you it doesn't matter what you're saying you got to say something to show clients that you understand if they're not talking to you they're talking to somebody and the, if you have business owner clients like you and I are both business owners the same challenges that we're we coach advisors on around building a business and HR and human capital you know we're likely facing ourselves as business owners so advisors if you have clients who are business owners you know th thinking D differently. Like imagine having a client event where you're bringing a practice management coach to help them think about developing their team. These are the types of things that the, that those advisors who've really done well are doing. And it's all about getting into the minds of the client. Well, I love that so much. I feel like I could talk and pick I your know. brain forever, Penny. So it was so great to have you on today. And thank you for sharing all of this wonderful information and just really tangible takeaways with our audience. And um, if you're not following Penny already on LinkedIn and Twitter, make sure you look her up, Penny Phillips, and um, check out all of the great information she has to share there. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode. Thank you for listening to the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors. If you found this episode informative, please share with your peers and colleagues. Visit fmgsuite.com to discover more great resources and products to transform you into an extraordinary marketer and grow your advisory. Subscribe and get updates delivered right to your inbox.